Uh, this is a big watershed day in the story of Saul and David. We're getting really close to the end of the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be done actually in uh, two more sermons and we'll be done. From here, from here on out, the last, really the last five chapters of the book, maybe I guess three more, the last five chapters of the book just kind of outline the, the different trajectories of David and Saul going in, in different directions. Uh, and uh, when we look at this today, when we read through this passage of 1 Samuel 26 today, uh, what I hope that we're going to be able to see is, is we'll see the stories and we see the people, but we also, the purpose of all this is, is for God to show us the beauty of God who's behind these stories. Sometimes we can get in the minutia and the details so much that we lose and looking at the, the little trees that we lose the beauty of the forest and the beauty of the God who's behind all these stories. And so today, I want you all to be thinking about the magnitude of God's grace, the magnitude of God's kindness uh, to the world, and I hope that that encourages you. So this is another uh, pretty long reading. I'm just going to ask everybody to keep sitting through it, but let's, let's listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is 1 Samuel 26. So then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is in the east of Jeshimon? And so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And when David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And so David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab, Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah, will you, will you, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of that spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. On his day... Or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now when David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them, David called out to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? 
Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the King? For one of the people came in to destroy the King, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more, I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many great things and will succeed in them. And so David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it show, what it shows us about you, Lord. We thank you... Uh, that you've given us these stories, these rich stories that are just so deep that we could never plumb the depths of them. Uh, but in the midst of it, it, we see the beauty of your grace and your mercy uh, and the, the magnitude of your goodness to the world, Lord. And so we pray that you would help our minds uh, to latch on to that today and that we would walk out of here today uh, having a completely new and better understanding of your mercy and your grace and your goodness uh, towards us in the face of Jesus, but also to the whole world, Lord, so that we might be better servants. Uh, we, Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, uh, you hear me say this a lot, all the time I'm, I say the same thing and drive home this point, that Christianity is not about good people who do good things so that God would love them. Uh, because there's a big chunk of the church that really thinks that, and they try to sell that to the, uh, to the world who watches, uh, but also inside the church. And so hopefully all of us, I think we would at least intellectually agree when I said that, we would all deny that Christianity is about good people doing good things so that God would love us even though practically uh, we tend to betray that and, and look to our works, look to our, our goodness, look to our magnitude of sin to determine whether or not God loves us today or doesn't love us today or whether we need to work harder to get God's love. But intellectually, we would all deny 
that Christianity is about good people who do good things to God, so God would love us. But what about, what about the flip side? What if we turn that phrase around and we said that Christianity was also about or calling out bad people who do bad things so that God would hate them? I mean, hopefully we would say no. That's not what it's about. Hopefully we would have a, 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 an understanding of God's love for the world, but, but think of all the little subtle ways that idea kind of breaks out and kind of spreads out in our interaction with the world around us. In all the different ways uh, that we talk in terms of us against them, about those people, about their attack on us. And, and, and when we make that divide and we start talking about them and the bad things that they're doing and us and the good things we're doing, it's it real easy f- to, uh, before you know it, have that idea kind of take over and we become, to our culture, judges of condemnation rather than ministers and messengers of good news. Uh, but the Bible is so different than that, right? The Bible constantly talks about uh, God's love for his creation, God's love for the whole world. God's goodness uh, is extending to everybody. Uh, and I think even in our tradition especially, we can so qu- be so quick to miss that because we can slice and dice our understanding of salvation up so fine that we begin to deny and, and it, could, the, it can be really easy to make the big mistake of denying God's goodness to the whole world. Uh, and this passage, I think, really clearly brings that out. It's, there's a lot in here that talks about God's goodness to David and how God is being merciful and protecting and extending grace to David, but there's all, the more astonishing thing to me in this passage, and we're going to get to it, uh, and the second point is that this story shows even more the goodness of God to Saul, the bad guy. Uh, it shows us just the magnitude of God's goodness to his enemies. And so the big idea, big idea we're going to talk about today in this passage is, is that God, uh, God's goodness extends to his people and to the world until the time of the end. God's goodness extends to his people and to the world until the time of the end. So let's look at the first one. God's goodness extends to his people. When we talk about God's goodness, it takes all these different forms. Uh, For us, for God's people, God's goodness mainly takes the form of, of grace, meaning God's unmerited favor towards us uh, and that's, that's played out for us in God's electing us and saving us from destruction. But the, covenant, the, the grace of the covenant also continues from there in what we call our sanctification or God's continuing to grow us in righteousness from that point. Um, and part of that, you know, last week we talked about God's restraining grace. When we're sometimes when we're about to like totally go off the deep end and do something that's going to cause a lot of damage, God will send restraining grace in the form of, of, of a person sometimes or his word or different things that stops us from doing things that we would otherwise do. 
In this, in this passage, it talks about God's grace coming to David and giving him opportunity to grow, opportunity to see uh, his, his own growth for his encouragement, right? Sometimes I try to, I try to catch my kids being good. And sometimes I'll even set up situations for them when I realize or understand that they've, received, they've like hit a certain level of maturity or a certain level of understanding of something, and I'll set up some situation for them where I'm pretty confident that they're going to react in the right way, either clean their room when they're supposed to without ass or listen to mommy or uh, you know, share something precious with their brother or sister, and I'll set up this little situation for that to happen and then when they do it I'll be watching off to the distance and I'll run in and I'll say I caught you I caught you being good and that makes them encouraged they're like oh my gosh daddy caught me being good (laughs) God does the same thing for his kids he does the same thing for his kids look what's happening here David uh you know these last two stories we read about David David had just learned this really hard lesson in the cave, when he first opportunity, he had to kill Saul, and he, he didn't do it. He stopped himself from doing it, rather than, he, 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 you know what he did there? So I'm reading through these stories. He refused to be Saul's judge and allowed God to be Saul's judge, uh, and that was important. And then in the next story, he faces Nabal, the fool, who's this powerful man, also presented in these kingly terms, uh, and David it, it blows it. And he goes in, he's going to kill Nabal. God sends restraining grace, stops him for that. And then God, then Nabal dies 10 late days later. And David goes, oh, I get it. God is going to be the judge. I can trust God to be the judge. Uh, and so now, this, here we are again, same situation. David's presented together with Saul, has the opportunity to kill him again. Uh, and he learns, uh, you know, he learns those lessons. Abishai, the guy he t- took with him, the guy is super excited. He's like, man, let's smoke this fool right now. And David's like, no, we're not going to do that. He learned a lesson, right? That's good. Good for David. Yay, David. But did you catch this? Did you catch this? They, they snuck into Saul's camp, right? Through 3,000 special operators, basically. The best soldiers in all of Israel. Saul is in the middle of all these men on the top of a hill, completely protected. They sneak in, and then they're standing over Saul, and David and Abishai are having a conversation. (laughs) I don't even know if they catch it or not, but there they are in the middle of all these people talking about what they're going to do to Saul. How is that even possible? How did David get into that camp? We think, well, because David is stealthy. David's a warrior. David's so slick. But listen to what it says. And so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away and no man saw it or knew it nor did any awake for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. That's why they were able to sit there and have this conversation. God had set this up and presented this opportunity. He created this space for David to succeed in his obedience. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been like in a kind of a tough spot and it's a lesson that, you know, maybe you've had trouble learning in the past or you had an opportunity in front of you and there was something you could do that you know would mess things up or something you could do that you would bring blessing and life and you did blessing and life? 
Sometimes that's God's grace working too. Sometimes he has to restrain us. Sometimes he creates opportunities for us to flex that obedience, to encourage us to see, yes, you can do this. You can stop yelling at your kids. (laughs) This week, (laughs) you can grow. He wants to encourage us. I mean, sometimes it can be start and stop and hardships and besetting sins and whatnot, but he also is encouraging us through these situations to grow. You can grow. I want you to grow. And listen to what, this is what David does. What does David do? Uh, This is what he says. He goes, and so David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. What did David just do there? He, this is a commentator. What a great commentator said this. He said, David used his sanctified imagination to think about how God might bring victory out of this awful situation. And I read that, so I read that like in the commentary, right? This is a very respected, reformed commentator, professor, reformed theological seminary. And I was like, whoa, man, that's a little too close to sanctified power of positive thinking. Doesn't it kind of sound like that? That David is using his sanctified imagination to imagine what God might do to bring uh, victory or to, 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 to bring goodness in, out of this situation. And this guy says, David's using sanctified imagination. I'm like, wait a minute, that's scary. Can we say that? And if we do, are we like, did we just cross a line into power positive thinking? Did we just cross a line into prosperity gospel? But you know what? Then I thought, I was like, you know what I use my imagination for real good all the time without even having to think about it? I use my imagination to think about how this is going to go wrong. (laughs) Something bad happens or it's a dicey situation. Uh, Things look scary. And my mind, immediately, the imagination of my mind goes towards, this is how God's going to abandon me. This is how I'm going to fail in this situation. This is how this is going to go completely south. It's a it's a lack of faith. You know, what we can't do, the control on this, the thing that makes it not sanctified power positive thinking is we can't put God in a box and require him to come through with any of our things that we might imagine. But we're totally free to imagine how God might create good out of this. I mean, our theology says that, right? Our theology says God is working all things for the good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love him. And if that's true, maybe an exercise of faith or that faith in action is instead of thinking about how things are going to go awful, to think maybe, okay, let me think about this. Lost my job. (laughs) Dang it. Well, maybe God has something better for me. Maybe God is training me in righteousness right now. Maybe there's something else that's going to be coming along down the line that's going to be better for us. I don't know what the situation is, but what if you tried that? Next time something happened and you were triggered and you were tempted to think and use your imagination to imagine how badly this is going to go, what if we instead... What would life look like if we actually lived out 
our theology that God is working all things towards the good. And we used our imagination to that purpose. That is God's grace and goodness to us as his people. Sometimes God manufactures these situations for us to grow in our faith and to give us opportunities to exercise what what it might look like for God to bring goodness out of this. And so that's talking about that's talking about God's goodness towards David, right? Which is which is pretty cool. But the big the highlight of this story to me as I've been reading through this whole book is God's goodness to Saul. Uh, God's goodness to David as one of his people is in the form of grace, unmerited favor, opportunities to grow in grace. But God is also extends his goodness to the whole world. This is the second point. God extends his goodness to the whole world, and this is in the form of mercy. And mercy is giving people opportunities for grace. In, uh, in that scene in Star Wars when Anakin Skywalker fights Obi-Wan Kenobi on the planet Mustafar, uh, you know, obviously Obi-Wan Kenobi is the good guy, but what, what, what we don't, you know, what I was noticing in that story is that he continued to extend mercy to Anakin all the way to the very end. Even when Anakin, Anakin was so puffed up in pride and so determined to get what he wanted, Obi-Wan gained the high ground and warned him, don't do it, Obi-Wan, I've got the high ground, you can't do it, and he did it anyways. But right up to the very end of that, Obi-Wan was extending mercy to him. Even when Anakin was so enraged and so overcome with his own sin and darkness, and he shouted out to to Obi-Wan, he said, I hate you. What did did Obi-Wan respond? He said, said, I loved you, Anakin. You were my brother. Now, that's just a little picture of how God, uh, the heart of God, is even towards those people that hate him. God extends mercy, which is the offer of grace, all the way to the end. How do we know that? Look at this story. Do you remember the story about Nob, the priesthood, the city of priests, uh, where Saul was, became so paranoid and delusional and that he thought everybody was against him? And, and Saul, the king, who had refused... To, to enact God's command and wipe out these Amalekite villages who refused to do that, instead uh, waged basically holy war on God's people on, this, on the city of priests and slaughtered every priest and all of their family and everything they had. And in that really showed himself to be a manifestation of Antichrist. We talked about that in the sermon a manifestation of evil opposing God's people. And if that's true, and it is, he showed himself to be that. What do you think God, I mean, just first reaction, what do you think God would do, should do for Saul from that point forward? David had two opportunities in the cave to kill him. And it was obviously, David knew that that was the wrong thing to do. First knee-jerk reaction to that is Saul is evil, therefore 
He's a bad man who does bad things. God hates him. He should be killed or annihilated or taken out of office immediately. But is that what God does? This, this, is, this is what blew my mind when I saw it. This is now the second time post the massacre of the city of Nob when God is extending the offer of mercy and repentance to Saul. Second time. That's why David couldn't kill him. One of the reasons why David couldn't kill him. He was the Lord's anointed, but that would have been David taking the position of judge over Saul when God's intent was to continue to provide opportunities for repentance for Saul, the guy who wiped out all the priests of Israel and their families. That's stunning. That is stunning. God's mercy extends even to his enemies. Uh, God's mercy extends to the whole world. For God so loved the world, and John uses that phrase to mean uh, the array of uh, antagonistic humanity against him. For God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, This shows us that there is a real offer of the gospel going out into the world. Some people, they reason poorly from some of our theological understandings that God does not love the world, that God's goodness does not extend to the world, that God's offer of salvation is not real, or that God's the offer of salvation is not a genuine offer of salvation. What this shows us is that God's goodness is such, His love is such, that He is extending that offer of mercy even to the most wicked, even to His enemies, all the way out to the end. You know? And that, that obviously that brings up some mystery, right? God is omnipresent. Does He know what Saul's going to do? Reject Him. Yes totally knows that. Does that mean that that offer isn't real? No. It means the offer is still real. There's mystery in there. There are ropes. One of my Old Testament professors once told me, he goes, some part of learning theology is learning where the ropes are. You're learning what we can know and what we can't know. And when you know where that boundary is, it really helps us to think about and know about God. So there's real, there's great mystery in here. But what this tells us is that God, his, his, his goodness his goodness extends to his enemies. And listen, if that's true, if God, that much goodness extends to God's enemies, what should our attitude be towards our enemies? Towards the enemies of the church? Towards the enemies of, of Christians? That's where we buy into that whole Christianity teaches that there are bad people who do bad things and God hates them so we can hate them too. That's not what it says. This is what it says. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, reason you do that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. God wants us to take on the family likeness because God is merciful and extends goodness to the whole world. He calls us to do that too, to let him be the judge and we take our position as servants and messengers of the good news. That makes things real easy.
But even more than that, listen, this is what I want to show you. If God has that much compassion and goodness on his, energy, on his enemies, what does that say about the level of God's compassion and goodness towards his kids? It's got to be even more, Right? We are always so tempted to think that God's love for us is contingent upon our current moral condition. God does not think in those terms towards us, does not think in terms of magnitude of our sin. Towards his people, he's thinking in terms of the magnitude of his grace. If God extends that much compassion and goodness and love to people who are actively hating him and acting against him, then maybe that when we fail or things don't go the way we hoped, or we fall into some sin and we're tempted to hate ourselves, we can remember God loves the world that much. How much more does he love us now that we're his kids? Which is what God promises to us in, in our salvation, that his goodness towards us will never end. No matter what, will never end. Um, there's a scary part to this passage too. The scary part is that there does come an end. There's a scary and sad reality in here that there can be a point of no return. Uh, For sure, that time comes for us at death, comes for us at the judgment. Uh, But sometimes it can come functionally earlier than that and it looks to me like Saul has reached the end in this story. Let me explain what I mean. There is, in Scripture, all these passages of, of the great divide. The great divide between heaven and hell. The great divide that separates the lost and the saved. Pictured in Bible stories. The great divide between the rich man and Lazarus that cannot be crossed. The great divide um, between the sheep and the goats as God separates people who trust him versus people who don't at the end of the age. And listen to, listen to the, the, the literary or poetic beauty of this passage. In verse 13, David scurries out of the camp and he calls out to Saul. He says, it says, And then David went over to the hill on the other side and stood far off on the hill with a great space between them. That's not an accident. The author's putting this picture up for us to consider. This is the last time that David and Saul will see each other. This is the great separation. From here they go in two different and determined directions. David to the Philistines, which precludes any chance really of Saul repenting and making David king. And Saul, in his despair, ends up with uh, the witch of Endor practicing sorcery as his only hope. There's always the opportunity for repentance, but for Saul, repentance means giving up the kingdom and handing it over to David. And post this point, it gets really scary for Saul because these things have been removed. The divine presence has been removed from Saul bit by bit, and now it seems as if the opportunity 
to repent is being removed as well. Always opportunity to repent in our hearts. But this, this presents kind of a scary picture. There's a great divide that's being created here, and we see it in their responses. In the response of Saul, it looks good, but it shows that he's really still trusting in himself and what he wants. Listen to what he says. This is Saul's response. He says, Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no longer do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Sounds so good, right? But what is he saying? He's saying, come back. Be the captain of my bodyguard again. It'll be like old times. There's nothing in there about I am handing over the kingdom to you, God's rightful anointed king, and subjecting myself to God's will. He's trying still, he's clinging to trusting in himself and trusting in what he thinks is going to save him. David's response is he trusts in the Lord. Look at verse 24. It says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, and he goes on to say, so may my life be precious, and we would expect him to say, in your sight, but that's not what he says. He says, as my life was precious this day, as your life was precious this day in my sight, may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. That shows, that's the big difference. Winning or losing, life or death, uh, good or bad, David is not trusting in, any, in himself or in any other person. He's just trusting in God alone and in the promises of God alone. And that's the big difference between Saul and David that we see here at the very end. We are, again, we're so tempted to make this all about our current moral condition. But if you look at the stories, man, what's been blowing my mind about these stories is you could make, you could make an argument that David uh, was just as immoral, if not worse, in his actions than Saul was over the course of their lifetime. That's not what this is about. This is all about what are you trusting in? What is your hope in? For Saul, his hope is in himself, the kingdom, his own glory. For David, his hope is in the promises of God. And that's how it's always been. That's always the indicator of salvation is what are you trusting in what are you placing your hope in? For Abraham, uh, you know, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was trusting in the promise of God. All the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam heard God's promise of the coming Messiah and he believed that promise and that's what saved him. It's always been belief in the promises of God and that is where we can rejoice. And that is where the encouragement comes out of this passage. For us, the promise of God to us is that when we look away from our current moral condition and trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus and his death on the cross for us, that that is what God, that is what, uh, that is what saves us. Looking outside of ourselves to what Jesus has done. Believing in that promise, God has promised us. Trust in Christ that's salvation. And so this gives us a ton of hope, a ton of encouragement. 
No matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter what the picture may look like, whether you're doing good, whether you're doing bad, no matter what the picture looks like right now, you just have to ask yourself a simple question. What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in Jesus? And if that's true, if you can say, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus, you can absolutely rejoice. You can rejoice in the sure and certain hope of your salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, I love it and we are so grateful that you are constantly, throughout all of your word and all of these stories, you're presenting these same truths over and over again, that our salvation is based on our trust in you. Our salvation is based in the promises. And we on this side of the cross, Lord, have seen those promises come true, the historical reality of Christ's crucifixion and the historical reality of his resurrection from the dead so that we can rest in that and know that we belong to you and that we are your kids because we believe. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help take our minds off the focus on our own moral condition and instead look at the beauty of Jesus and in and through that as we are drawn to you and drawn to your goodness and drawn to your beauty, uh, that we would become more like you, Lord, that your love for us would make us lovely. And as we receive more of you and desire more of you, we'll become more like you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.